Last Sunday and this Sunday, if you're new to our church, we're departing from our normal teaching style, which is expository. And what that means is I try to take an individual unit of Scripture, find the idea that it's trying to communicate, and share it with you. We think together about how we're supposed to apply it. Last week and this week are a little bit different. You can consider this training rather than preaching because this is a more topical approach to take a very biblical idea and talk to you as plainly and practically and personally as I know how about what our church should be doing, what we should have been doing all along, what we now understand with crystal clarity we're supposed to be doing now until Jesus calls us home. Have you ever been given a job and told that you have to do something without being told how to do it? If you've never done that job before, is that a pleasant experience? No. Now, aside from some sad and uh, short stints as a dog pooper scooper and an English teacher and a cashier, I've been in ministry my whole life. Think about the combination of those particular jobs, okay? Picking up after dogs came at the age of 13 and convinced me to stay in school. It was a beautiful, beautiful experience. (laughs) But aside from those three random jobs during my education, I've been in ministry my whole life, so I'm fascinated by what other people do, and I love to talk to them. And I'm sometimes surprised at the tasks that people are given with no training. It even happens to pastors. Purely because I was the only one who spoke Spanish... I once had to do my first funeral service. I'm not sure I had turned 20 yet. And I had to do a funeral, and a difficult funeral at that. They're all sad in their own way, but the circumstances surrounding this particular death were really, really difficult and sensitive. So I thought, I'm going to call a mentor. I'm going to call an older guy who has done countless funeral services and who knows how to handle himself and what to say in these situations. Here's the training I got at the tender age of 19. He said, Bruce, tell them about Jesus. You'll do great. Bye. (laughs) And I looked at the phone like, did we get disconnected? Did he, he actually hung up on me. You know, I'm getting the busy signal back. That was the extent of my training. Tell them about Jesus. As it turned out, it's wonderful advice. It's what I did, but I was hoping for something a little more practical, okay? A little more step-by-step. Now, if you were here last week, if you weren't, you're at a disadvantage But if you were here last week, we looked specifically at the Great Commission, that's what Christians have nicknamed that little passage at the end of Matthew's Gospel in chapter 28. What are we supposed to be doing? What is the one thing that Jesus told us to do? (laughs) There was a moment where I questioned my life's meaning and the effectiveness of my work. Did you hear that long pause? Like, we have no idea. Remember? Jesus said, all authority has been given to me everywhere. Therefore, go and make disciples. Thank you. Feel better. I even, we even dug into the original language of the New Testament a little tiny bit, and I showed you that the one imperative, the one commandment in that passage is and only is 
make disciples. Going, baptizing, and teaching them, those are necessary things. Those are commanded too, but in the grammar of Matthew's gospel, the one thing Jesus said to do is to make disciples. Today, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about how we're supposed to do that. Now, if Jesus had been making disciples and he told those same disciples to take over for him and make disciples since he was leaving, do you think Jesus had a plan? Did Jesus have a method in mind? Prepare for the greatest understatement in the history of our church. Jesus was wise. He did not say what everybody was supposed to be doing and leave them up to their own devices on the how. I want to talk to you today about the how. Mark chapter 3, verse 14, shows us a pivotal time in the life and ministry of Jesus. To this point, you'll see it's Mark chapter 3 out of 16 chapters. So you'll see it's very early in the ministry of Jesus. It's early in his public ministry, and to this point, Jesus has been preaching and healing and doing the work that his Father sent him to do alone. In Mark chapter 3, verse 14, is a big pivot. It's in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, that he is going to choose disciples to bring them close to himself, and he's going to give them work to do. And it's a little verse, but it's meant a lot to me for the last 20 years Read it with me, Mark 3, verse 14. We can read it right off the sheet if you like. The Bible says, speaking of Jesus, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. It's quite a moment. St. Jesus has a lot of followers at this point. He already has some who have heard the message they've believed but this is a vital moment in his life. The Gospels tell us that he had spent a night in prayer, and when he was done praying, he walked among the many who were following him. And this is all we're told about how he did it, but we know there are bigger groups than this. There's another group called the 70, for instance. But these are going to be the 12. These are going to be the original apostles. And I don't know how he called them, but perhaps he walked among his many followers and came to face to face, one by one, with 12 different men, and maybe he put his hand on their shoulder, and maybe he drew them close, and maybe he whispered into their ear that they had been appointed, they had been chosen. Mark 3.14 tells me at least that much. He appointed 12, little parentheses, whom he also named apostles. That's another one of those pesky words that they didn't bother to translate. They just brought that over from Greek. Just so you know, that word literally means one who is sent. So these are going to be his specially chosen disciples among the many who are following. No one is going to be closer than him, than the twelve, and they are also going to be those who he is going to send out. They're the tip of the sphere. They're the beginning of the wave of what every disciple is eventually going to be told to do. But then there's two really important words that you don't have to know Greek or even much English to understand. It says that Jesus appointed these 12 and he called them apostles. And then it says, so that. Ooh, profound. 
we're really studying the Bible now. When we were going chronologically through the Bible, I begged you and encouraged you to slow down in your Bible reading. This is one of those times where slowing down really pays off because it tells you what is in the heart of Jesus when he calls any disciple. Jesus is no longer physically present, but when he calls disciples to himself, the so that tells you why these were chosen, and it shows you by extension what he has in mind for all of his disciples. So let's study the Bible together. Jesus called 12. He named them apostles so that they, what? So that they might be with him and send them out to preach. So how many purposes did Jesus have in mind when he called his original disciples to himself? Two. Not one. Two. So that they might be with him. Wow, I wonder what that looked like. You ever had the privilege of spending personal time with someone you admired for a long time before you met them? I occasionally get that treat. Someone I really admire who I consider a hero in some way, and then get to spend personal time together, maybe have lunch every once in a great while. I'll get it even closer, you know, to the inner ring and get invited into their home. And he's just a guy. But I'm fascinated. I'm like, I wonder what he eats. <laughs> I wonder how he pours his coffee. Oh, he takes it black. Me too. I like this guy even more than I thought I would. And you're just drinking it all in because you're trying to learn from this person. And in that being with, sometimes there are great lessons that can be learned as well. If they'll let you be close. That's the point. The creator of the universe, Jesus Christ, the king, of whom John, one of those disciples, says nothing exists without his word and his will. He made everything that is, and he sustains it by the word of his power, the Bible tells us. Everything that exists was made by Jesus, for Jesus' glory, and here Jesus is walking among common people, the most common profession among the 12 commercial fishermen. In other words, not fancy guys, not well-trained, not well-educated, not important, not respected, most of them drawn from a fifth-rate backwater in their own culture. And he's walking up to them saying, you, you especially, come with me. And he wanted them to be with him. And having done that, he also had a job for them to do. What was it? To be with him, and he was going to send them out to, to proclaim, to talk about him. And you're going to see that over and over and over and over again. But this is at the heart of the way Jesus discipled and the way Jesus wants us to disciple. There is a heart-to-heart, -heart, close, personal relationship, and then there's also a task. There's something that disciples are to be doing. And the purpose of this sermon is to talk to you about that practically. Paul's going to pick that up in 1 Thessalonians. And beginning in the last half of, chapter, of verse 6, Paul's going to write to a group of Christians that were birthed out of Paul's preaching. And little tiny baby infant church in a place that worshipped idols suddenly had, in a town called Thessalonica, there were suddenly a group of Christians who Paul said in the first chapter, turn from idols to the living God. And then he had to run for it, as Paul often did. 
Some Bible scholars think that 1 Thessalonians was the first letter Paul ever wrote. We can't be absolutely sure about that, but this is very early in his ministry, and Paul is now going to tell them how he wanted to disciple them, how he wanted to grow them to maturity. Last week, I showed you again the cross point table. It's our way of visualizing spiritual maturity. There are people that are invited into the family, but they don't know Jesus yet. They are dead in their sins. Then people are born again, as Jesus said, that everybody should be, and people who were born become infants. It is as infants, as children, that Paul is going to address the Thessalonians. Watch. He says, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you. Ready for a big word picture? Surprising in a Pharisee? Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you as a nursing mother nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers, working night and day so that we would not burden any of you. We preach God's gospel, in other words, God's good news about Jesus to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged and comforted and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. I'm not really preaching. We're doing more training. We're studying the Bible together this morning. There's two word pictures that Paul uses here. Great communicators use word pictures. No one better than Jesus, and Paul's pretty good too. What are the word pictures that Paul uses in this little chapter to explain how he felt and how he behaved among the Thessalonians? They're at the beginning, at the end of the paragraph. First, he said, I was like what? Nursing mother. Is that a word image you associate with the Apostle Paul? It's pretty tender. You've got a little room over here for nursing moms. There's not a more beautiful, tender, life-giving picture anywhere on earth than that. Paul says, we loved you so much that when Jesus gave you life, when Jesus woke you up to the fact that he really is the Savior, our relationship with you was like this. We were like a nursing mom nurturing her own kids. Wow, that's not an image I'm prepared for with Paul. Paul was a Pharisee. Paul was so absolutely certain of his religious beliefs that he arrested and consented in the death and imprisonment of Christians. In other words, this was a man who was exceedingly hard and proud. There was only harshness and self-righteousness in him. What can Jesus do with a man? He can make him so loving that he sees himself now helping the babies grow as people pass from death into new life, Paul says, we, as we were with you in that short period of time, we were like your mom, making sure that you were fed, making sure you were nourished, making sure you were saved so that you could keep growing up. There's another word picture too. What is it? We're like a father with you. And if you notice, the language remains tender, but it's a little different, isn't it? We were, can you give me some words? Encouraging and comforting and pleading or imploring. It's a little different. 
Babies don't need encouragement and babies don't need to be pleaded with. They just need to be fed. Paul said, we were also like a father with you. Another translation says we admonished you. In other words, this is a little firmer. This is like, hey, get it together. Get on the right path. I put on my dad hat just this morning. Right before we started church, I thought, you know, Phoenix is an hour ahead. My son should be up and around very soon to church. So I texted him and said, have a great day at church. <laughs> and he didn't text back. I gave him half an hour. Then I called him and I said, left a voicemail saying, hey, hope you have a great day volunteering and worshiping at your church. I'm pleased to say between services, I checked again. Here's a text message. I'm going to the second service. I'm on it. Ah, okay. <laughs> I didn't, you know, I didn't call him a slug or anything like that. There was no harshness in it. There was definitely a call to value, okay? Because when he left the state, one of our big father-son talks was, you go to church and you serve in church and you love people at church, not because you're a pastor's kid, but because you're a disciple of Jesus. You're not in our church anymore. Go find one. Go give your life away there. That's, that's the father part. Paul says, that's how I behaved when I was with you. I could have made impositions as an apostle, as a sent one. I could have expected financial support from you. But as a loving parent sometimes will, I left those privileges behind. I worked instead hard with my own hands so that I would be no burden to you. And on the contrary, I behaved like a nursing mother and an encouraging, firm father telling you to walk worthy. More fatherly language. One of the good things or bad things about growing up in our home is we are continually calling our boys to account on the basis of being Christians and also being in our family. That's their core identity. They follow Jesus and they're in this family and this is how we behave and this is how we don't behave. This is what Paul is doing. This is the nature of discipleship. And there's a surprising little verse there. Did you notice verse 8? There's a surprising little phrase in verse 8. He says, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you. Here's what's surprising to me. He says, not only the gospel of God. You know why that surprises me? Because the gospel is the whole thing. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, we were happy, we wanted to share with you not only the gospel, not just the gospel. Paul, are you saying the gospel is a second-rate matter? Not at all. But he said, we were willing to give you not something better than the gospel, but definitely something more than the gospel. And I'm going to try to make this land inside your, our church and your family in just a second, but stick with me. Giving people the gospel is not the same thing as also giving them something else that Paul says he wanted to give away. We wanted to give you not only the gospel of God, but also what? Our own lives. See, that's different. What I'm trying to do right now, and praying about it all morning in a good chunk last night, I'm trying to broadcast the gospel to you, give you the good news. It's not nearly the same thing as also giving you my life. Those are separate things. 
You see, most I've, I've been in some kind of formal biblical education for quite a long time. Bible college, seminary, and still working on it. In all of those classes, I was given the gospel. In very, very few relationships did anybody try to give me life. And it wasn't their fault. That's not what seminary's for. Seminary delivers content. And Paul is saying something beautiful that is at the heart of discipleship and makes the difference between discipling groups and a discipling relationship and a Bible class or a Bible study. Discipling not only gives you the gospel, it also gives you the discipler's life. That's what Jesus was up to in Mark 3, verse 14. That's why it's so explicit. The Holy Spirit didn't have to help Mark write it down that way, that Jesus called the 12 to be with him and to send them out to preach, but he stopped and he said their first task is to be with him. What did they learn from that? Everything. Wouldn't you like to know what made Jesus laugh? That'll tell you where joy is. Wouldn't you like to know what makes Jesus cry? That tells you what's wrong with the world. Wouldn't you like to know what makes Jesus angry? All of that being with as he walked through life very intentionally, drawing them close so that they could see him, the word in the flesh, made a world of difference. And after three years of that, he said, now, boys, I'm going home. You go make disciples. Has it worked? We're here. <laughs> 2,000 years later, more on that in a second. Here's the difference between a class or church attendance or being in a Bible study and being in the kind of environment that produces disciples, which is what our church should be doing. That's what Jesus told us to do. This should also be happening in the heart of your family. If you're a Christian, spouse and parent, your chief goal in life is to help those kids love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbors as themselves. In other words, to be disciples of Jesus. And I care a little bit, but the financial security, the wealth that my boys may achieve someday in their career matters to me very little, and not at all if they don't know Jesus. Because I can introduce them to wicked men who deny God, whose lives are worthless, and everything they, be, they have will be taken from them just that quickly in the moment of death. And it won't matter for anything unless they know and love the one who made them. That's their purpose. That's why they're here. That's why you're here. But for all of that to happen, it takes something more. It's not something better, it just takes something more than merely giving people the gospel, merely telling them the truth. See, all that formal biblical education, and frankly, a lot of the personal training I received in ministry was just a little different. Jeff, could you mind coming up here to illustrate just a second? You won't have to say a word, I just need you for just one minute. All right. See, most of the, let's look this way. Most of the, <laughs> most of the ministry training I was given in all those years were like, the relationships were like this. We were face to face, but do you notice the arm? It's straight. He's not coming any closer. I don't want him to. Okay? <laughs> the people who made a difference 
with those who relaxed the elbow and got right there. Thank you. That's all I need. <laughs> There's only been a few of those, but I can tell you exactly who they are. Beginning with my father and a few other hand-selected men in my life, a few of them relaxed the elbow, and they weren't just giving me the gospel. They were letting me hear the difference it made in their own hearts because they let me get close enough to hear it. That's what we're about. If it's just biblical content, you can find that anywhere. What Jesus wants is disciples. And disciples require two things, the gospel of God and life-on-life life investment. What I'm trying to tell you, church, if you look back on your, on your sheet, is this. Both the message and the method of Jesus are sacred. Why do we pursue small groups? Why do we have one-on-one -on -one discipling relationships? Because we see Jesus doing just that. Did you know that Jesus was a small group leader? He was. Twelve disciples, one of them a traitor. But they changed the world. Of them, their opponents said they turned the world upside down. The world. How did commercial fishermen, how did a religious, how did a religious zealot, how did a political zealot, some of whom hated each other because of their lives prior to Jesus, how in the world did they do that? Jesus invited them to be with him. And once they had understood about him with the power of his spirit, he sent them out to preach. Both the method and the message are sacred. In simple terms, our mission is discipleship. That's what we're supposed to be doing, beginning in our homes, in one-on-one -on -one conversations, and in very intentional relational groups, we are to be making disciples. The mission is discipleship. The message always is the gospel. That's at the heart of it. But the method is a personal relationship. That's what Paul's talking about when he says, we gave you not only the gospel, but we also gave you our own lives. So let's think, and again, I'm being trying to be practical this morning. Is what we're doing this morning, is this a relational environment? Nope, it's not. It may feel that way because of my personal style, and I tell all these crazy stories and refer to myself as an addled squirrel. But there's no relationship here. There's truth. There may be personal connection that God arranges as you hear the word as I'm trying to explain it. But this isn't life on life, not yet. This is good. This is something that Jesus had in mind. This is something Jesus told us to do, but it's not the whole story. What then does it take to make disciples? It takes intentional leadership. That's why I'm telling you and kind of departing from expository preaching for two weeks before we focus fully on Christmas, we've got to be purposeful. We've got to be intentional if we're going to make disciples. In your home and in our church, if we're not making disciples on purpose, we won't make disciples at all. We'll attend church for 10, 15, 20 years, and if there's no intentionality from the church itself and the people in it, 
Generally speaking, what happens is we just went to church. And there's no organization in the world that you would trust with your life that had that kind of game plan. Would you want a doctor who was just taught randomly helpful things? This guy's going to be a doctor. How are you going to train him? Well, you know, we, we think biology is important, so we'll talk about biology for a bit. And we think chemistry has a lot to do with medicine as well, so we'll talk a little bit about chemistry. And, of course, dispensing drugs and medication is very important, so we'll talk for a few weeks about medication. We might even talk to him about bedside manner a little bit so he doesn't offend people. Could I see the scope and the sequence? Could I see the, nah, we just kind of, you know, we just kind of show up. Can you imagine? Now, what very often happens, what has happened in our church, on my watch, my bad, my fault, we're just kind of rolling out worship gatherings and various spiritual activities, and here's the humbling part, just kind of hoping that something sticks with no real intention on outcome. Paul had nothing to do with that. Look at Colossians 1.28. He said, we proclaim Him, Jesus. We proclaim Him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone. What's Paul want? He wants people mature in Christ. Paul knows exactly the outcome he's looking for as a result of his disciple-making effort. And you see Paul doing what Jesus did. He preached to all and he drew a few close, enough that he could personally invest in. Men with names like Timothy and Titus, he brought them close. He flexed the elbow. He relaxed the elbow to bring them close, so close that he called them his sons. Did it work? Here we are 2,000 years later. I heard an amazing story in a course I took a couple of years ago with Admiral Blues Baker, who was the chaplain for the Marine Corps before retiring. He said the Marines had a recruiting problem a few years ago because they were getting a lot of recruits. They were getting a lot of boots. But a lot of people were washing out and not making it through boot camp. And there was a big political strategic consideration A lot of people are failing out. We're not meeting our enlistment needs. What should we do? Well, these are the Marines. They sent a message back down saying, perhaps we haven't been clear. They didn't say it quite like that. Probably a little little terser than that. They said to the recruiters, "We're we're not asking you and paying you and instructing you to send us recruits. We don't want recruits. We want Marines. So if we need 80 Marines and you send us 100 recruits, but we only get 60 kids through boot camp, that's a failure. We're not relaxing our standards. We're reinforcing what we want. We want Marines, not recruits. Big difference. Paul had that same kind of crystal clear leadership clarity that Admiral Baker told me about. Paul wants disciples. Where did he get that idea from Jesus? He doesn't want sermon listeners. He doesn't want well-intentioned people. He doesn't want merely kind or compassionate people. He knows that a disciple will be all of that and much more, and he's crystal clear on what he wants. He wants everyone mature in Christ. So if our church and your family is purposeful, we'll look at that little table, if I could see that illustration again. And we will try in relational environments where we can actually figure it out, where is everyone who calls Cross Point home? 
Are you an infant? Did you just trust Christ? Have you been saved for about six months or two years, but that's about all you know about it? Praise God. We're thrilled that you're here. Let's teach you the basics and move you over to being a child. Now you're a child. You can start serving. You can contribute, but you're going to be a little self-centered because that's the characteristic of a child. They think it's all about them. Let's continue to get close. Let's get heart to heart, shoulder to shoulder, so that you continue to mature. And Paul, Paul says is, I'm striving hard so that everyone one day will be mature in Christ. What am I telling you? Disciples need to know and feel and do like Jesus. Knowing is not enough. That's the purpose of a class, but it's not nearly enough. Someone who is mature in Christ, someone who fully embodies what a Christian is, will not only know as Jesus does, but they will also feel and act as He does. And that takes a relational environment. What I'm trying to tell you, if you're not in a cross-point relational environment, whatever we call that, and if you're new, it's not, maybe we've dropped the ball or maybe we haven't had time yet, but we want every single one of you who calls cross-point home in a few friendships, a few relationships that are close enough that when life falls apart for you, you know who you're going to call. And you're close enough to those people so that you know they're helping you grow and you're helping them grow as well. If we don't do that, and again, if I could be personal, if we don't do that, a pastor will not become a pastor as Jesus intended. If people are disconnected and merely filing in and filing out on Sundays and participating in each other's lives on the basis of convenience rather than a mutual commitment, what we'll end up with is not a pastor. We'll end up with a preaching chaplain. And there's a big difference. See, I volunteer occasionally as a chaplain. And when they call me in my role as a chaplain, here's what happens. I go to the scene of something that is very difficult. And I stay with those people for a few hours. And then I leave. And in those experiences, never once have I ever heard from those people again. That's not my role. At a certain point, it's not even appropriate. What do I mean by a preaching chaplain? If you commit yourself only to coming on Sundays, but you keep that elbow nice and straight, when life falls apart, you'll call the only person you know, someone on the staff. And they will come and they will love you as best we can in the love of Christ, but you'll miss out on so much more. As relational environments and small groups in all kinds of formats and sizes have begun to take over the life of our church, thank God, I hear of so much of the Spirit, the work, and the truth of Jesus being applied, and then a week later I find out that happened. Why? Because the body has already rallied around its wounded member. They've loved and embodied the spirit and the truth of Christ in personal relationships that already existed so that when life got really hard and really sad, they knew exactly who to talk to. It takes a relational environment. And when you have that, Paul says in verse 29 of Colossians 1, something amazing happens. He said, I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. That's quite a verse. I labor for this. This is what I'm working on, striving with, what's it say? His strength. His strength. Wow. 
I'm working hard with the strength of Christ. Because I've set my mind, Paul says, on disciple-making, I'm working hard at it with his strength, which I feel powerfully in me. Do you want to start growing as a disciple? Commit to helping someone else grow in their faith. You'll be astonished at the strength that God supplies once you start doing exactly what Jesus told you to do. And I should make a correction perhaps that is lurking somewhere in in your mind based on my teaching from last week. If you're thinking because of the illustration of the table that you'll need two or three years before you start serving and giving your life to somebody else, I've messed up and failed to explain myself very well. Let me ask it to you like this. When does a candle give light? As soon as it's lit. The minute you meet Jesus, you have his light in you at that moment, you can start making a difference for other people. Jesus once told a man who had been demon-possessed by thousands of demons who called himself legion, you go tell the people what God has done for you. You don't come with me. You go home and tell them what God has done. Did that guy know much about Jesus? No, but he knew he was saved, and he could tell them. So, you can be a recently illuminated person, someone who just received Christ, and that light can shine from your life, and it should. You're the greatest tool that Jesus has to bring new people into church because you know everybody else that doesn't know him yet. You're not a church person yet. Every single person at that table has something if we will willingly humble ourselves and get close enough to each other to do what Jesus said to do, we're going to find his strength working powerfully in us. And the last thing that it takes is a reproducible environment, uh, a reproducible process. We've covered this before already. You know the answer. Did Jesus provide a reproducible process? Here we are. 2,000 years later in an entirely different language, very far removed from that ancient culture and those ancient tongues, here we are with Jesus as Savior one another as family, and a really clear mandate to take the gospel everywhere and to be disciples who make disciples. Could I give you a moment to pray, please? Everyone is in one of those chairs, spiritually dead and far from God, saved and just know that much, a child, you've grown, you know the truth now, you can begin to serve, a young adult who's striving and asking your father desperately for your purpose, what's your lifelong impact, and some of you are already spiritual parents who had somebody relax the elbow and draw you close, and they've helped you become the person you are. You can trace your faith, your walk with Jesus back to a specific few who got close enough for you to hear it in their hearts. I just want to open a little space of prayer, just a minute, for you, according to your understanding, whatever chair you're in, to talk to Jesus about it and commit yourself to moving over and around the table and getting close enough in a discipling environment, in a relational environment, so that you could grow and help grow. That's what he wants us to do. 
That's why he called his disciples. That's what he tells these disciples to do this morning. Take a moment and tell him you'll do it.